Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 22, as today we return to our series in Luke. We took the the month of January off to spend some time just being reminded from scripture of the purpose of the church for each of us individually and for all of us as a whole. But now we come back to Luke and uh, by God's Good design and my own finagling of the January series, we look at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper on Communion Sunday. And so, yes, that was on purpose. Uh, so uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able, from Luke chapter 22. Verses 1 to 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and Prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. 
So while it feels, uh, I don't know, wise, convenient to have our passage arranged for Communion Sunday, uh, on Communion Sunday, about communion, uh, it also means that we are in now like the last, literally the last two days of Jesus' life on earth. And it would be nice, wouldn't it, if then the resurrection in Luke came on Easter Sunday. That would be a pretty convenient thing. But it means that we will be spending the next eight weeks in the last two days of Jesus' life. And that just seems like a long time to slowly go through the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion. But we will see. We'll look at that together and decide. Well, I'll decide and you'll come faithfully and listen. So, and I appreciate that. Uh, but today we're looking at the beginning of those days, the, uh, what seems to be a lot of preparation for something new. Some of those preparations we'll see are pretty dark and sinister. Uh, some of those preparations are pretty mundane, just normal, everyday preparations. And some of those preparations have been made before the foundations of the earth were even laid. And then we'll also look at this, this new meal and even, hopefully if there's time, seek to understand what is it that Jesus means by this new covenant. But first, let's look at these preparations Uh, The first, just sort of the dark and sinister preparations in verses 1 to 6. Verse 1, we're told that this is the the feast of unleavened bread is approaching. Uh, It's called Passover. Uh, It was introduced in Exodus chapter 11. It was introduced alongside of the 10th plague in Egypt by which God delivered His people from slavery and from bondage. There was a lamb that was to be slaughtered. And the blood from that lamb was to be put on the doorways of their homes. And the people were to eat the lamb entirely And any leftovers were to be burned to ashes, and they were not to leave their homes because that night the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, was going to come through the land of Egypt, and every home that was not covered by the blood of the Lamb, the firstborn in every home would die, all the way down to the cattle. The slaves, the noblemen, every firstborn would die if the home was not covered in the blood of the lamb. But if the, lamb, if, if the angel saw the blood, then the wrath, the death, would pass over the house. God would pass over them and not pour His wrath out onto that household. And that meal 
or that death, God used the death of the firstborn, including the firstborn of the Pharaoh himself. He used the death of those firstborn sons as the final plague that would mean the deliverance of Israel, of God's people, from slavery. They were delivered by the death of the firstborn sons of their enemies. And as a result, God gave them a meal to celebrate every year to commemorate, to remember that they had once been slaves in Egypt, but God delivered them through this lamb. They would eat this lamb, and along with the lamb, they would eat bread that would be called the bread of affliction. And they would eat bitter herbs, and they would have a a meal with with songs and with sayings and recitations, and, and they would remember and recall God's faithfulness to them, even when they were in slavery, that God delivered them. All because he remembered, he remembered his promise that they would be his people, that he would be their God, that he would be with them. This was one feast. There were several feasts and sacrifices in uh, Israelite uh, law. Uh, This was one of a few that it was mandatory to be celebrated in Jerusalem. You had to be inside the city limits to celebrate this this feast, this Passover. And so you would return because uh, in the Old Testament, he said, just all you always have to bring the lamb to the place of God's dwelling. So before the temple, it was the tabernacle. They would bring the lamb once a year to the tabernacle. And if they were in the wilderness, wherever the tabernacle was set up. And then when they were in the promised land, in Israel, where the, pro- where the tabernacle had its location, they would bring the lambs to the tabernacle. And then once the temple was built, they would bring the lambs to the temple. One Jewish historian records that in 66 AD, at the dedication of Herod's temple, no fewer than 260,000 lambs were sacrificed for that particular Passover meal. This is a couple of decades after this Passover meal. But given that you had to eat the whole lamb, and if it was too much food for you, you would invite another family to consume the lamb together. You would eat this meal. And so if you average that every lamb fed about 10 people, 260,000 lambs means that Jerusalem at these great feasts would have about two and a half million people in the city celebrating these things, celebrating these feasts. No wonder we hear that the priests and the scribes We're afraid of the crowd. It's a big crowd. It's one of the two things we learn about these priests and the scribes, the leaders, the religious leaders of God's people at the time. We learn two things. One, they're looking for a way to kill Jesus. Two, they're scared of the people. Fortunate for them, 
there was a man who was willing to help them. And it's not just any man. Luke only mentions Judas by name one other time in the entire gospel, and that's simply in a list of the 12 disciples. That's the only time Judas is mentioned until chapter 22, and he's mentioned three times. And all three moving in a direction of closer and closer intimacy. First, we're told he's one of the 12. So he's not just one of the 70 followers or even the hundreds of followers of Jesus. He's one of the 12 specifically chosen to be apostles, the closest to Jesus, the 12 men he poured his life into and himself into for three years. Then at the end of our passage, Jesus says, the hand of the one who is going to betray me is with me on the table. He's not just one of the 12. He's here eating this intimate meal with us. And then at the end of chapter 22, at the arrest, he will betray Jesus with a kiss. There's an intimacy, a closeness to this this relationship. And it's not merely that he was willing to help, that they sought him out. Did you see this in this passage? He went to them. There's so much speculation as to why. Why, Judas? Why? I mean, some speculate that perhaps it's uh, because just things weren't moving along fast enough, that, that perhaps he was trying to force the issue, bring it to, to, to some level of confrontation. Jesus is, maybe, maybe it was a, Jesus is the Messiah, we got to show them. Whatever the reason, it is a, a faithless unwilling to, unwillingness to just follow Jesus, to hear his words, to, to allow Jesus to do what he is here to do. It's a frightening thing to read, isn't it? Then Satan entered into Judas. Satan and Satan's messengers, often called evil spirits, or demons. They are Satan and his messengers. They're referred to as accusers, as tormentors, as liars, as tempters. They have power to do physical harm to those that they are tormenting. As I did just a short kind of looking through every passage about demons and Satan, nowhere in Scripture do we see that demons or even Satan have the power to take the controls of a person and cause him to sin in a way that goes against his own desires and nature. 
To read that Satan entered Judas is not to read that Judas is not guilty. So most of you won't even understand what I'm saying when I say Flip Wilson was wrong. The very old comedian whose punchline was, the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do it. Kids, kids, look at me. Say this with me. The devil can't make me do anything. We got some old kids up front here, but thank you. Thank you, Bob. The devil can tempt you. The devil can torment you. The devil can lie to you and accuse you. I mean, his two, his one-two punch that the devil has, that he uses most effectively is first he'll lie to you and say, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Like, just, I mean, God wants you to be happy. Just do it. And then his second one is, oh, man. You, you have totally screwed that up. There's no way you're a Christian. There's no way. Did you see what you just did? Did you see how easy that was for me? You, you are useless. You're hopeless. I, I, would not, I wouldn't go talk to God now. First, there's no point resisting. Then there's no point in repenting. Satan entered Judas only on the ground that Judas had given. We're told that later in this very passage, Jesus will warn Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. We need, before we even get much further, to hear the warning of Judas. He was near Jesus. He was in the inner circle. He's one of the leaders of this group. He's one of the closest friends of Jesus. He heard all that Jesus taught. He saw all of Jesus' healings. He's one of the 72 sent out to preach the gospel and to even cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And how easily he was swayed. for a little bit of folding money. We should ask ourselves, what would it take? 
What's my price? What would it take to walk away from Jesus? Maybe it's not a bribe. Maybe it's just at a certain level of suffering, at a certain level of loss. I just say, what was this for? What is the point? Frankly, Jesus, you're not worth it. The preparations have been made. And now Judas will simply wait for a time when there are no crowds around. This may explain the sort of quiet preparations Jesus makes for, the, for their Passover celebration. He takes two of his closest, two of his most trusted twelve, Peter and John, and he tells them, go make preparations. I will not have this meal interrupted. This is too important. We need a quiet, private place to do this. Go take care of this. So what are these preparations? Go prepare the Passover that we may eat it. It's now we have... Whereas in the first three verses, it's sort of somewhere in the week leading up to, we are now, the day of Passover has arrived. The day came of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And so he tells them, go and make preparation, preparations. A lamb is going to be slaughtered. They need a lamb for this preparation. With over 200,000 lambs being slaughtered, it's going to take a long time, even for a lot of priests. Preparation is needed. There's the unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, that needs to be either made or purchased or procured. There are the bitter herbs. There's a place that needs to be prepared at these uh, special feasts and special dinners, they wouldn't sit at tables. They would recline together. They would put rugs and pillows down, and they would all lean in in a circle with their, their feet kind of expressing outward in a star shape, and they'd lean on their, their left arm while they ate with their right arm, and it would be an intimate gathering. This space needs to be prepared. And they say, well, where? Where should we do that? And this is another place where the questions arise. Did Jesus simply know, because he's the Son of God, what was about to transpire? Or did Jesus make plans? Did he speak to someone ahead of time? It's not entirely necessary to know the answer to that. I mean, Luke definitely says everything happened exactly how Jesus said it would. And so there is that part of it, but it's also quite possible because Jesus says a man is going to meet you. Someone is looking for them. When you enter the city, he doesn't say, when you enter the city, you will find a man. No, he says, when you enter the city, a man with a jug of water is going to meet you. Follow him. 
when you get there, ask the master of the house. Where's the place where we can set up Passover? This is simply an unnamed disciple of Jesus. Not one of the twelve, but an unnamed follower of Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Even the the juxtaposition of, of Judas, one of the most intimate followers of Jesus, and this unnamed man, the just the, the difference in their hearts toward Jesus. And so they go, and they prepare. They find everything as Jesus has told them, and so they prepare the meal and the room, a lamb, some bread, some bitter herbs, and some wine, a room with some cushions and some carpets, and rugs so that everyone is comfortable. It's all so normal. It's all so mundane. I mean, it sounds special to us because we've never, we don't have these feasts, these Passovers, but it's a, it's a Passover that he can say to Peter and John, go set this up for us because it is a thing that they have experienced every year of their life since they were children. Passover, that celebration, that reminder, God delivered us. And so just real quickly, before we get to the the new meal and the new covenant, one other piece of preparation that shows up at the end of the conversation, when Jesus says in verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table with me. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. We learn here that preparations haven't just been made in dark secret places for the death of Jesus, but preparations for the death of Jesus have been made a long time ago. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In Isaiah 53, telling us of the sacrifice of the the suffering servant, the end of Isaiah 53 that talks about the man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, stricken by God, afflicted for our sins. We're told in verse 10 or 11, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. In Peter's first recorded sermon at Pentecost, he'll say, this man whom you killed, though it was according to the very will of God, it was according to the plan of God, yet you killed him. And in other passages, in in Romans and in, in Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who before the foundations of the earth claimed us. How? Through the death of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 13, the celebration that, that our names are written in the book of life by the blood shed by the Lamb. Our names were written before the foundations of the earth. 
John will tell us. Before the foundations of the earth, the death of the Son of God was planned for our salvation. Not the death of the firstborn son of God's enemies, but the death of his own son. That the wrath of God would pass over us, we who abide under the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, it, it raises the two sides of truth that, that the Bible never is afraid to raise, though we, our heads get all bent out of shape when we try to think too much about it, about God's sovereignty and providence and man's responsibility for his actions. The Son of Man is going exactly where it has been determined for him to go. But woe to that man through whom this is going to happen. Even in the woe to that man, do you hear? It's not just this declaration. There is a... Judas is there. Even in pronouncing this woe, it is a... Judas, it's not too late. Come back. Come back. You know, on, in the garden, we will see Jesus on his knees praying, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Here is Jesus who has a choice before him. He can either obey or not obey. And here is Judas, who has a choice before him. He can either betray, or he could not betray. Woe to that man through whom this will come. But all the preparations being made, we get to this new meal and this new covenant. The sun has gone down. The Passover meal would always be celebrated in the evening. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before my suffering. That alone is insane. Jesus is less than 24 hours from his death. And he just wants to spend his last meal with his friends. I have been looking forward to this meal so much. This, I have earnestly desired this Passover with you. Even knowing this Passover is the last meal for Jesus it's great to, to see it in, in the Greek. I'll just share it with you because, like, who's going to care about this stuff? But I earnestly, desiring I have desired. There's no, there's no adverbs in Greek. It's, he says, desiring I have desired to eat this Passover, this Pascha, 
Paschal Lamb with you before my suffering, my Pasco. It's just a beautiful and gut-wrenching sentence. I won't eat it again until it's all fulfilled in heaven. I'm not going to celebrate this deliverance again until I can celebrate with all of you. Isn't that something like there's going to be a great celebration of deliverance and Jesus is just waiting. He's waiting until we're all there. Is everyone here? Okay, we can start. It's odd that some people look at this and say, well, obviously Jesus didn't eat the Passover when he says over and over, I, I've been looking forward to eating this Passover with you. And then he says, I won't eat it again, implying he ate it now. And so there's no reason to put Jesus in some strange place where he's like, like he didn't eat any of this stuff. I mean, while it is, at least the writers are intentional in not telling us about the lamb, it was a normal Passover meal. He said, go make preparations. This wasn't, he wasn't introducing a new vegan-style Passover. It's just that all of the gospel writers had realized when they were writing, the Passover lamb wasn't on the table. The Passover lamb was at the table. And we missed it. And thank God we don't miss it now. But man, we do miss him. Luke's the only writer who tells us there's more than one cup of wine. In a traditional Passover meal, there are four cups of wine. Luke acknowledges two of them. The others simply point to the one cup of wine that comes right after supper. But there's the cup of sanctification. Each cup was to celebrate some aspect of God's promise in Exodus 6 of how He would deliver His people. And so each, each cup of wine that they would drink through Passover, they would focus on some aspect of God's deliverance. So, for example, the first cup is called the cup of sanctification. And the first thing in, in Exodus 6, 6 says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of, Egypt, of the Egyptians. So, I will bring you out. Sanctification literally means to be separated, to be separated out. I will bring you out. I'll separate you from the Egyptians. The second cup was the cup of deliverance. God says, I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup is called the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. And he literally says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then the last cup is the cup of praise or the cup of hallel, which simply means praise. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And after that cup, they would sing Psalm 118, one of the psalms called hallel or hallelujah. Jesus takes the cup after giving thanks, but before the meal has begun. And he says, take this cup, divide it among yourselves. I'm telling you, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I can drink it with you. Another reminder of the great celebration when he finishes 
what he began. But now we get to the meal. Bread from an old meal becomes bread for a new meal. Wine from an old meal becomes the wine of a new meal. Verse 19, taking bread, having given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So much division in the body of Christ over, pardon me, what the meaning of is, is. This is my body. It's, it signifies my body. It's, it represents my body. After all, the, the disciples aren't confused about where Jesus is. He's sitting right in front of them. They see his body. Normally, the sentence is, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came from the land of Egypt. There was no confusion about how old the bread was they were eating. When it was told to them, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate, nobody got a little queasy and wondered, how do you keep bread fresh for so many thousands of years? No, they understood this represents, this is our partaking of this bread is our partaking in that bread. It's a representation, it's a, it signifies, it points to, this is my body. Given is the significant word. Broken is the incidental verb. In order to distribute the bread, it had to be broken. The breaking of the bread wasn't the point of the symbolism. In fact, in reading and studying this, I realized I say this wrong a lot every communion Sunday. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb, and one of the stipulations of the Passover lamb was not a bone of its body was to be broken, even in the consumption of the Passover lamb. And there's even passages that say, and so he fulfilled the scripture that not a bone in his body was broken. It's not that the body of Christ was broken for you. It's that the body of Christ was given for you. This is my body given for you. It's this little preposition that carries so much weight, especially the, the Greek preposition for for. In one sense, it's given Sorry. Given for you or given on behalf of you. But in another sense, it's given for you, given in place of you. So we're, we're approaching baseball season. I mean, nobody even cares about next week's game anyway, so... But, you know, when they announce it, you go to Nationals Park and he says... Now batting for the Washington Nationals. Like he's batting on their behalf. What he does at the plate is for the benefit of the team. He's batting on their behalf. But then sometimes you get an out-of-shape pitcher who somehow accidentally gets on base. 
And so they put in a pinch runner. He also is running for, but not just for the good of the team, but he's running in place of the man on base. However far he gets around the bases counts for the man. Not so much his record, but this is where Jesus is so much better than baseball. This is my body given for you on your behalf. It is for you. It is a blessing for you, but also in your place. This is my body. This is myself given for you. I give myself not just on your behalf, but also in your place. My death counted for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so after supper, the third cup, the cup that comes after supper, the cup of redemption, I will redeem you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood that is being poured out for you. Like the bread for you, my blood for you. Blood, life, Genesis In Genesis, the warning after the flood, you may eat the animals, but don't eat them with their blood in them because the life is in the blood. In Acts, when they are telling the new Gentile Christians, the new Greek and Roman Christians, you will not need to be circumcised, but the instruction they give, but just don't don't drink the blood of animals. Why? Because they were just grossed out by weird Gentile practices? Because it was icky? Because it was unsanitary? No, because there's, the life is in the blood. Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for you. This is my life poured out for you. For your benefit, in your place. My life for your life, myself for yourself. And it would just be awesome if it ended there. And, but why did he say, this is the new covenant in my blood? Where does that come from? Even in the New Testament, most of the times new covenant is mentioned is surrounding communion. Or else explaining the single place in the Old Testament where New Covenant is mentioned. So when Jesus is referring to the New Covenant, there's only one passage in Scripture that he's drawing from because there's only one passage in Scripture that indicates there will be a New Covenant. And that's the passage that we read for the meditation in Jeremiah 31. In fact, that's why I chose it, so that you would have it in writing before you to look at. All three places in that passage where where we see made or established, literally the Hebrew word is cut a covenant. So he says, behold, the days are coming 
when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I cut with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So there's this language, and this isn't the only place, many places where it says God made a covenant. Literally, it says God cut a covenant with Noah or God cut a covenant with Abraham. And now he's saying, I will cut a new covenant. Now, this is in Jeremiah 31, more than halfway through the book of Jeremiah, in the very book where God says to Israel, you are so deep in rebellion against my covenant, you are so deep in your rejection of me, stop praying. I don't want to hear it anymore. I will not answer. This is the same God who now says, I will cut a new covenant with you, for you. What is different? He says, it's not like the covenant I cut at Mount Sinai when I delivered them. So what's different here? Is it intimacy? Is it a more intimate covenant? No, he says, at that covenant, I took you by the hand. I took them by the hand. It was an intimate covenant. Is it a, a covenant great, based on grace now instead? No, I married you. I became your husband. It was all by grace. The covenant cut at Mount Sinai was not faulty. The recipients of the covenant were faulty. Israel was a covenantal train wreck, as one author put it. And so if intimacy and grace aren't new, what's new? This covenant will not be undone by man's fickle and rebellious heart. Your sin will not undo or end or break this covenant. There is still law. That's not different. He says, I will, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And is that what's new? That God's going to write the law on their hearts? Well, no. That's throughout the Old Testament. That's the whole point of the law. In Deuteronomy 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Isaiah 51, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Psalm 119.11, maybe you've memorized this. Your word have I hidden in my heart so that I won't sin against you. So it's not an elimination of the law and it's not the ingraining of the law. What's so new about this covenant? It's intimate. It's by grace. There's law. The law is written on your heart. All of these things occurred before. And we're part of the covenant. What's new is the scope. What's new is the success of the covenant. One sign of that success, Jeremiah says, is that, listen, one day, there will be a day that, that it will be so complete that you won't even need to teach each other. You won't even need to say, know the Lord, because everyone will know me. 
from the least to the greatest. Now, it's odd that we take that and think that must be the Holy Spirit season. Like, that's now, right? We don't... And it's like, well, do you feel like that's now? Do you feel like now that I'm a Christian, I haven't needed a teacher in 17 years? I got the Holy Spirit and everything made sense. That doesn't make sense. That itself doesn't make sense. And it's a strange thing that God would say, hey, the elders, one of their qualifications, they need to be able to teach. Who? Why? You just said we don't need teachers in the new covenant. Or even last week, when we finished up our time with the church, why does God give apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to instruct God's people and equip them if God's people are fully instructed and equipped. They don't need any instruction. That doesn't, this is saying like it's going to be completed. The new covenant, like it's not, it won't end until God has accomplished it, till he has brought us to that final meal when we have been brought home and we will know. What a great promise. So what's so new? You might think maybe the end of it is new. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. But isn't that celebrated throughout the Psalms? That God removes my sin as far as the east is from the west. So far has the Lord removed my sin from me. Everything in the covenant... And in this new covenant, rests on this. Will God forgive sin or will he keep a record? Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for you. Did you notice notice what was missing or what's missing in Jeremiah 31? I know that's a weird question. Did you see what's not there? There's a lot of things not there. At Sinai, Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and he poured it out onto the altar, half of it anyway. And then he took a hyssop branch and he dipped it in and he sprinkled it on God's people, this blood of the covenant. Where is the blood of the new covenant. It's alluded to, I will cut a new covenant, not like the covenant I cut before. This covenant I will cut for you. Jesus. Jesus is the the missing link between the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and the consummation of the new covenant when we are all finally home. The blood of Jesus makes it a new covenant, not the blood of lambs, not the blood of goats. One final sacrifice to end all sacrifice. One sacrifice to which every sacrifice pointed and finds its fulfillment. Every sacrifice was a sign of the perfect sacrifice. And now he's saying that sacrifice is here. This is the new covenant in my blood that is being poured out for you in your 
place on your behalf. Never forget. Let's pray. God, we come to this table to remember you gave your body for us. You gave yourself for us. To remember you gave your blood for us. You gave your life for us. We remember and we celebrate. We are your people. We are your Children, you are our God. You have made us to be your children. We pray, God, that you would remind us, restore us, encourage us, feed us, strengthen us for the work you still call us to. Write your law on our hearts. Give us a desire for you and for your ways over ourselves and our ways. Grant to us that we would heed the warnings of Judas. That we would not harden our hearts to you. God, thank you for your word, for your sacraments. Thank you for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.